Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy, crime, LGBT, thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. Heard on 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050 AM Palm Springs. Guest. Um, I'm incredibly lucky because normally I would be interviewing um, those in the paranormal world and those, those individuals who may have experiences of spiritual activity or um, alien abduction, UFOs. And today I'm really, really fortunate because I've been allowed reign to interview Ron Chapstick, who is a, a, a very accomplished author, has his own publishing company, has um, been, he's got his own radio show, and I'm fascinated by the type of interviews that he has undertaken in the past and the, and the work he's done, and he's actually ended up in many ways... Um, kind of investigating the world of true crime and what that looks like practically on the ground floor. So, welcome, Ron. Thank you very much. Good to be here. So, um, I've got to explain to Ron that my, my interview technique is more of a conversation, So, um, and a little bit about my background. And, Ron, tell me about you growing up, your experiences growing up that have led you to be who you are and to inform what you do today? Well, I'm, uh, I grew up in um, the frozen tundra, <laughs> more commonly known as Canada, uh, in a city called Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is right on Lake, Lake Superior. Um, it's, it's a very kind of unique environment, very isolated, uh, uh, although you know, we had access to the world through our port. You know, it's a really, really a huge port. Um, but I got to uh, meet a lot of sailors on boats that came down the St. Lawrence Seaway when I was a kid. And uh, you know, they invited me on the boat and they'd tell me stories about you know, their travels and all that. And um, 
So I grew up with a real uh, keen interest in the world beyond my uh, my city. I grew up uh, uh, relatively poor, um, and uh, if it wasn't for my mother, I probably wouldn't have gone to gone to uh, gone to uh, university or might not even completed high school. Um, but she she pushed me, and uh, so I went away uh, to school. The first chance I got, I was about 19 years old. I went to uh, I managed to make it into uh, 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 I was a real jock in high school, really good basketball player uh, and a football player, and uh, I focused more on that than on my studies. But I went away uh, to a university, uh, which is uh, today known as University of Minnesota at Moorhead, and uh, studied. And in my sophomore year, I met a, uh, had a teacher that taught a course, broad course called Humanities, uh, which everybody was... Um, required to take that was a sophomore in the, in the university, and uh, I really resented that. But I took the course, and it introduced me to the world of culture, uh, art, architecture, uh, and literature, everything of, of um, Western civilization, and it uh, opened up a whole new world to me, and I became very interested in learning uh, at that point. And um, so I uh, ended up, and I did graduate with a, with a bachelor's degree, but with no clue uh, what, I, what I was going to do, and of course this was during the uh, late 1960s, and um, uh, you know I was caught up in the events of the um, of the time with the anti-war uh, movement, uh, the Vietnam War was raging, and it was very unpopular and all that. And uh, like a lot of young kids of that period, I was really not uh, uh, you know looking for direction at that point. But uh, so I spent a couple of years just working you know menial jobs which was good for me because it taught me that I didn't want to work menial jobs for the rest of my life. I wanted something bigger. And so uh, I uh, decided, uh, being uh, actually a practical person, uh, what, 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 what I would want to do. And I narrowed it down to journalism or librarianship uh, journalism because I thought I liked to write, even though I hadn't written anything. And librarianship because uh, I wrote a lot, because I read a lot at that time. You know, I was, I was very interested in reading after after college, and I got interested in um, you know, the world of culture. And so I decided, well, I'll, I'll go back to library school. So I went to library school and uh, got a master's degree in uh, librarianship. And uh, uh, there was a lot of jobs at that time. So I, I got a, a, a job as a as a, uh, instructor and um, librarian at a university called uh, Winthrop University uh, in Rock Hill, South Carolina, where I live now. I still live. And uh, I became a, an archivist, uh, learning how to uh, curate um, important information from the past, which was actually good for me later because uh, that's where my research skills came from. You know, I understood research, whereas unlike a lot of writers, when they start. And so um, I uh, uh, became um, uh, an archivist, did a really, uh, you know, a good job at it. I really liked it and all that. And uh, I got a sabbatical to go to Ireland to study uh, archival administration at the University College Dublin, in, uh, in Dublin, Ireland, uh, in uh, around 1988. So I went there, and uh, the Irish are very interesting people. You know, they're, they're very good with with, um, with gab, but they aren't too practical, you know, uh, people themselves. But I got sort of caught up with, uh, the, you know, with the spirit of, of, of writing. I met a lot of people that were writers and all that, and I said, Geez, you know, I, one time I thought I would want to be a writer. Maybe I would want to be a writer. Maybe I can be a writer. So I started to 
to uh, to craft articles and uh, send them off and getting all kinds of rejections. And uh, But finally, before I left, I did send an article off to a British publication called Marathon Runner, London-based publication, and uh, it covered the first Belfast Marathon in Belfast, which today may not seem like a big thing because there's, there's a, it's been a peaceful period in, um, in Ireland, in Northern Ireland uh, now, but it was very uh, turbulent at that time. And I sold it. I mean, I made the, the princely sum of, I think it was 50 pounds, uh, which translated, I don't know, something like, uh, at that time, maybe $100 or so. So I was really impressed. I went back home and started to uh, to write on the side as I did my job as a, as a university archivist and professor. And uh, slowly but surely, I started to build up credits and uh, became quite successful at a, becoming a magazine writer. And today I have 4,000 articles which I've sold since that, since that time. And um, uh, eventually I decided that I would, I would uh, uh, leave uh, my profession uh, as an academic and become a full-time writer. And um, I, in 1988, uh, I was on a press junket to, um, to uh, Colombia, South America. And at that time, of course, Pablo Escobar, the famous uh, uh, drug trafficker, was running wild. And uh, the Colombian government uh, had an uh, airline called Avianca, which they hoped, uh, they, they were inviting writers in, hoping to improve their image, uh, you know, as a violent country and trying to attract tourism, which was kind of crazy at the time. Because it's a very dangerous place, and uh, I was—I uh, missed my connection home, and was lined up for a blind date. And I met the woman that uh, <laughs> became my wife, and uh, we, we married, and all that, which gave me an interest in Colombia. So I would go back to Colombia periodically and write about the, uh, the drug traffic and the crime and all that sort of stuff. So that's how I get interested in crime writing, and um, so uh, I, I eventually. Uh, uh, took an early retirement from the uh, university and became a, a full-time writer. And uh, building on my um, crime um, background, I decided that I wanted to write uh, uh, more books. And so I wrote a book uh, just before I left uh, on the Colombian drug trade, uh, which I sold and, uh, and uh, did okay. And uh, I started to write uh, about other books. And um, my first book I did on, um, on a book, uh, a subject called Gangsters of Harlem, and uh, I had, in the 1970s, uh, I had gone to uh, actually a predominantly black school in Atlanta to get my master's degree, and I, I spent a lot of time going watching movies on black exploitation movies in the 1970s, like Shaft, Cotton Comes to Harlem, um, mm-hmm. Superfly, um, uh, Black Caesar, and all that, and so I said, hey, there isn't a book on this subject, let me write one. So that's how my Gangsters of Harlem book came in. And then that led me to a second book on black gangsters of, uh, of Chicago. And I, uh, I started to become <laughs> inadvertently an expert on, on black organized crime. And so that's how I ended up writing a lot of books on, on black organized crime. And it just seemed to, uh, to grow from there. And so that's how my uh, career uh, started, uh, you know, in, uh, in book writing. And about three years ago, I made the shift. Uh, from writing books to, to writing screenplays, and now I'm working on um, two option screenplays that will hopefully be made into movies, and I have three other of my books options. So that essentially, in a nutshell, is how I got from, <laughs> from birth to where I, where I am today, here living in Rock Hill, South Carolina, as a screenwriter and author.
Oh my word! I want you to backtrack a little bit, <laughs> just a little bit. Okay. Well, I, amazing... I covered the I covered the Vader's last thing I left out. Yeah, that amazing, amazing history. Yeah. I, I I guess for me, when you were talking, I was listening avidly to what you were saying and, and trying to think about where you might have been at each each point in your life and each each movement through to another part of this amazing journey, and. You know, growing up and, and not having those resources around you and ha- but having a mother who was absolutely confident and empowering of you to achieve everything you could, to going to university, to obtaining your, your BA and then, and then your master's, and then saying, do you know what, this, this is, I'm now settled, I'm happy, I'm married, and I, I'm, I'm now going to have this interest in, in Colombia. But not just Colombia. I'm now going to write about something quite specific. I'm going to. I'm interested in the drug trade. What was it? And I guess this is what I'm interested in: is what was it that made you interested in that particular aspect of Colombia? Because there could have been many things that led that, that kind of highlighted your. Well, your it, was, it, was matter, it was a matter of opportunity uh, because there was so much interest in um, in Colombia. You know, in the late '80s and early '90s, when Escobar was running wild and embarked on his narco-terrorism campaign in South America. So it, it was essentially, you know, opportunity because I, I had contacts in Colombia. If, if I wasn't um, married to Colombia and I had family there, it would be very difficult for me to come there unless I was with an established newspaper. I couldn't do it as a freelancer without uh, some regard for my, for my safety and ability to, uh, to uh, find sources and all that. So uh, I had the opportunity, and that's what uh, I did. And of course... You know, uh, I was getting paid uh, well, you know, for, for my articles uh, because a lot of these, uh, it was supply and demand. You know, there was a demand for information and, uh, and uh, articles about uh, what was happening in Colombia with the drug trade, and, uh, and I was able to supply it because I went there and I was able to write articles. I had sources and all that, and uh, that's how I, you know, uh, started. And then, of course, it led to the book, the bigger book, because it wasn't a, a really good book on on the aspect of the Colombian drug trade I chose, which was the Cali cartel, the main opponents of uh, Pablo Escobar, and I was able to, um, to um, uh, you know, uh, use uh, my, my uh, experience as a writer and my contacts and uh, the opportunity of the moment to, uh, to uh, develop a career. I may add, too, I've also reported in 35 countries, not just Colombia. I've, you know, I've, I, I was in Northern Ireland when Bobby Sands... Uh, you know, the famous uh, IRA um, uh, activist who was in prison and died uh, of a hunger strike. Uh, I was in, you know, in, in Nicaragua when the Contras and the Sandinistas were going at it in the late 90s. Uh, I was in Cuba, and I got kicked out of Cuba uh, because they entered illegally in there. And I was in Bangladesh, you know, in 2002 when the, when the Iraq war broke out. So I saw the, um, the conflict from a, from a different perspective than a lot of um, uh, Americans and Canadians saw it. I mean, clearly, for those people who, who don't know much about the cartels and don't, don't know much about um, you know, those, those kind of key and very significant points in history, they wouldn't, I suppose, understand the kind of potential danger that you were in at those times. Let's talk a little bit about the cartel and, and what that actually meant for you and, and what the risks were for you to collect your research. Well, that's you know that's um, you know I'm uh, you know I'm I'm, uh, I'm aggressive as a journalist, but not crazy, right? 
I'm not going to a situation where uh, you're, you're, the danger outrides uh, the possibility of coming out, <laughs> coming out of the situation. But I always tell people, I say, look, I said, it always looks a lot more dangerous than it really is. Because people, even in war, war-torn areas, even if you look at you know, a lot of places in the world today that look like really, really dangerous and look like, like, like uh, you know, uh, very difficult people live, they still have to survive. They still have to live, and they have to go on your daily daily things. And this was the case when I would go to Northern Ireland, too. You know, it was a very tense situation. But, uh, but uh, you know, people live very normal lives. And I'm always very careful. You know, I won't take undue chances. You know, I've had opportunities to do things, you know, which I've, I've turned down because I, I never thought that to me, to, uh, I never thought that, uh, I thought that the, the risk out, uh, outweighed the, uh, uh, the rewards that I would get for doing the story. And, um, for example, so I've been offered sources, different sources, and I didn't like the situation that I was in, so I never really, uh, you know, never really followed up. So, I think that, you know, that I'm a, very, I'm a cautious person. I also think that, um, you know, I'm probably a little bit lucky, too. Uh, you know, I've been in a situation, like in Cuba, for example, um, I was there, I entered the country in 1988 when, before um, the Soviet Union broke down, so there was a big Russian contingent there. And uh, I went in, uh, you know, with a, went on a visa, and I put the, um, um, that, I, that I was uh, coming in um, as, a, as a librarian, and uh, on a you know on a tour like an educational tour, which you were allowed to do. So I went to the country, and then I ended up um, meeting some dissidents, uh, Castro dis- uh, anti-Castro dissidents, and meeting with them, not knowing that I was being followed by the uh, uh, by Castro secret police. And uh, I was uh, picked up and um, and interrogated and told that I was in the country under false pretenses that I had come in. And I was actually a journalist, and uh, and I put on a librarian on my card. And I was a librarian, but I was actually working. You were right. I was working as a journalist. I came in as a journalist. Yeah. But I had fortunately met uh, an American that had lived there for like 22 years, and she was uh, actually friends with Castro. And uh, she actually put a good word in for me, because uh, um, it could have been a very dangerous situation because there was no embassy, U.S. embassy, and there still isn't in, in Cuba. And the government would have told me, well, what are you doing in there anyway? You shouldn't be in there anyway. And they probably wouldn't have helped me. But uh, she vouched for me, and so they gave me 48 hours to get out of the country, and I got out 24. <laughs> I was on the plane the next day, and I left. And ironically, um, uh, I came back two years later. And people say, are you crazy going back there? But this was, this was Cuba, one of the poorest countries in the world. And they didn't have any kind of system to keep track of people coming in and out. You know, they used they didn't have computers at that time, really, uh, you know, at, at immigration and all that. And so, uh, you know, I said, mm-hmm. no, I said, uh, you know, and they needed my dollars because they were desperate for dollars. And I went back on this time as a librarian uh, for a conference of librarians in, in 90, in, I think it was 92, uh, that, I did, that I did that. And, um, and I went back again one more time a couple years later. So much about writing is about education and you know, we, we know that many things in history will, can, can be used to predict future, or at least the potential for future events. What would be the single most piece of learning that you've had personally when researching for your works? Well, in terms of my research? Yeah, personal learning in terms of your research. Well, uh, I'll put it this way. 
because I specialize in crime, I'll never be a criminal. <laughs> it is, uh, I don't care how much money you might be able to get away with because criminals never get away with anything. You know, that's one of the great <laughs> great lessons that's so obvious uh, that I, I, I find it very hard to believe that so many people become criminals is that I could count uh, on a few fingers on one hand the number of people that may have, that got away with, with crime. You know, everybody eventually pays for it in some way, either death or, or, or imprisonment or uh, uh, personal uh, destruction. And so... You know, that's one of the, I think, fortunately, that's one of the good lessons I've learned. You know, I'll never be a criminal. You know, I'll always stay on the right side of the law. And uh, I think that uh, most people won't uh, won't uh, be that wise, and that's why I'm able to write about it and continue to write about it. What's the, what's the most important piece of work that you've written about, do you think, in terms of well, putting the learning out there? For okay, welcome back. Done, um, I think I've done a, a, a several books that I think are interesting. I think the, uh, the book I did on the Cali Cartel, uh, which uh, I was featured in Netflix's uh, narco series, right? They were the third year of, uh, of the um, the third uh, year of the series Narcos, which was very popular on um, on uh, Netflix, and they were probably the most powerful. Um, criminal organization that ever existed, even more powerful than Pablo Escobar, but not, nothing was really written about them. And, uh, and still, I've, I've got really the only book that's, that's, uh, that's covered their, their entire history of that organization. And um, I think that that's probably one of my, I think it's one of my works that I'm really, really proud of. I think that's important. And also I did, um, uh, Black Organized Crime has been uh, underwritten. There hasn't been really a, a lot of uh, serious stuff written about that, and um, I've done a you know a couple of books on on that subject, which I think is important. Uh, uh, Black Gangsters of Chicago, uh, which covers the history of organized uh, crime in the uh, uh, black organized crime in that city, and I did a couple of major uh, profiles, uh, biographies of uh, you know, Frank Matthews, who's one of the most interesting. Um, uh, Characters and uh, we, Alan Warren and I discussed it on this show. Uh, and, uh, and the other book is uh, Sergeant Smack, um, which uh, covers a really unusual angle on the whole history of the war on drugs. Um, we have a, a, a black uh, a drug trafficker who was actually a master sergeant, um, you know, not 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 badly off. Uh, who didn't enter the drug trade until he was in his 40s and uh, conducted his uh, enterprise uh, during the height of the Vietnam War from Bangkok um, uh, and um, uh, became one of the biggest drug dealers using the cover of the U.S. military to ship his, his uh, drugs uh, to, from, from Bangkok to the United States. And, how uh, how became, did you know about him? Ron, how did you know about him and what he did? Well, uh, the reason I knew about him is that I did my book, Gangsters of Harlem, and I, I profiled uh, a gangster you may have heard of, because uh, uh, is Frank Lucas, who was the uh, uh, black gangster profiled in the really popular, hugely popular movie, American Gangster. Uh-huh. And uh, I profiled him, and uh, he kept raising this, this name, Ike Atkinson. And I said, uh, I thought, I said, who's this Ike Atkinson? 
Um, and I did some research, and I found out that this guy, in his own right, was a huge uh, trafficker that sort of disappeared largely because at that time he had spent 29 years in prison. Uh, he had been in prison for 29 years. And I said, well, where is he? I, look, I looked, uh, looked him up, and I found out that he was actually three hours from where I was, li- where I was living, you know, in my home city of Rock Hill in, uh, in Butler, um, Butner, um, North Carolina, at prison there, federal prison. And uh, I said, God, this guy would be really incredible to write a, a biography about. Nobody knows about him. And I said, I wonder if he would be interested in, in, uh, in my uh, uh, writing his biography. So I wrote, I wrote him a letter. And I happened to mention Frank Lucas in there. And uh, I found out later that he had turned down uh, every interview during his 29 years. But he agreed to see me. And uh, so I, I wrote it down there. And uh, with the warden present, um, I interviewed, uh, you know, I talked to him and to find a little bit more about him. Uh, we did strike up a report, and uh, he told me that he, he decided to, to, uh, to uh, talk to me because he was really upset about Frank Lucas had lied about him, about his role uh, in, in his relationship uh, with uh, Frank Lucas, and that uh, you know, he'd, he'd be interested in, um, in working with me on his biography. He was, he was going to get out in about a year. And this was like 2007. I said, great. And what really was advantageous is that he would, he would uh, when he got out, he would live, go back to his hometown of Goldsboro, North Carolina, which was about four hours uh, from where I live. So it was really um, uh, you know, convenient you know, to do the book. I, I got his, uh, his cooperation, and uh, he did get out of prison on time uh, after 32 years of, of, cons- of consecutive incarceration time, which is quite amazing. And uh, I, uh, I went to work and ended up with about 40 hours of interview. But during that process, I got to know the guy. And he was a really amazing um, individual. And uh, he was about 81 years old when he got out. And uh, just a, a really likable guy. Even the guys that put him in prison wanted to talk to him on the phone when they found out that I got out. And we developed, became really good friends. And... Uh, and uh, uh, we, we we published the book, and it's an option too. I've got somebody working hard trying to get into a movie, and um, and uh, unfortunately, I passed away at age 89 in, uh, on November 11th, which is um, Veterans Day 2014. And so I think that book, because I, I had a chance to interview him, uh, use a lot of records, talk to a lot of people that he knew that were up in age, that uh, a lot of them had died. Uh, after I interviewed him, so I, I got a lot of things on the record, uh, and I think that you know it was important from that perspective. So I think that's you know also a very important project that I got involved with. That I'm very proud of. Very powerful piece of work. What, why why was he tempted to do that? What was it? What was the underlying? What's your your theory? Because we can all say we do something because of ABC. Well, you know, this is interesting because uh, of course you know I was going to spend you know five or six years with him, you know, getting to know him, and we, we would, I would go see him, not even when I was doing, after the book came out, you know, we became friends, so I would visit him and all that, and we went to New York on promotion and all that, and I asked him that question, I said, Ike, I said, uh, you had everything going for you, he was a master sergeant in the U.S. Army, he actually retired in 1962, and, and it was no mean, uh, mean feat to be a master sergeant, because he was black, and of course the uh, Army 
when he was he served in World War Two, was was uh, was segregated at that time. It wasn't uh, desegregated uh, until Harry Truman did that in the late forties, nineteen forties. And I and so I said, you graduated. He was a professional gambler. Uh, he made his living at gambling. Uh, when he graduated, when he got out of the army, uh, uh, Ike was able to buy a, a house for himself from the money with a swimming pool. The only uh, swimming pool, uh, house uh, owned by an uh, African-American in Goldsboro that had a swimming pool. And he was able to, uh, you know, he had money in the bank. <clears throat> he was gambling. He was going all over the world for big poker games um, and, um, and uh, making a lot of money. And uh, he sort of got into drug trade. And when, when he went to be with his friend, uh, a, a guy named um, Herman Johnson, <clears throat> who was his partner in crime, who talked him into the drug trade. Uh, but when I asked him, I said, "Why did you do that? You had you had so you had the money. You didn't need it." And uh, and he said, "I really don't know. I think it was the the, the, the adrenaline rush." And I would say, "Adrenaline rush." He goes, "Yeah." He goes, "You know." And I looked at him. I said, "Yeah, I know." I said, "You're, you're a risk taker, and you just love the thrill of the chase. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, trying to out, out with the law enforcement, and uh, you know, getting away with something that." Uh, that it would be difficult to do, and I think he had this this uh, uh, sort of uh, character of a gambler, and uh, he just applied it to uh, to a real criminal. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Back to be like drug trafficking. So I think that was why did he, he had did it. Think he was, Pardon? Did he, ever, did he ever think he was going to get caught? Uh, they never do. <laughs> that's, that's unfortunate. And I, I asked him that question. Maybe you should have interviewed him to he was alive because that was another good question which I asked him and uh, you know he said he never thought you know he would get caught and he said you know you're caught up in the moment right you're caught up in the moment and and uh, he had all kinds of money uh, you know uh, uh, Don Diva which is a, a, a black uh, magazine which appeals to young uh, uh, African Americans not only African Americans but uh, white uh, whites as well but uh, did a profile of him after the book came out and uh, uh, the estimated that the amount of drugs in today's money that Ike um, was able to uh, transport uh, to the U.S. was uh, equivalent to about over a billion dollars in, in that, you know, in, in today's money. And the DEA, he was one of the biggest drug traffickers uh, under radar during the 19, uh, 1970s. And his drug trial in North Carolina is still the biggest drug trial ever to be uh, uh, undertaken in in, um, in North Carolina. And so um, he, uh, you know, uh, he was, uh, uh, you know, just a incredibly um, um, adventurous person. And uh, he never thought about the consequences. And I think that's what happens to a lot of criminals. You know, they get caught up in the moment. They're they're, they're uh, just caught up with the wealth you know, the power that they've attained. And once you're in, it's very difficult to get out, especially if you're operating at that level, um, you know, because a lot of people are, are, are after your position. You know, you get a position of power. And um, and so Ike uh, did get caught. You know, he got caught um, and uh, was sent to prison. You know, they had a lot of evidence on him and he sent him to prison. But Why he never broke him. He never Why broke him. Why does he think he Well, you know, he... he you know, I never really thought about it. The amazing thing about Ike Atkinson was his personality. Um, okay, you know, one day we were going to, uh, I, I stayed with him, and we were going to New York. We were going to do some promotion for the book, and uh, I wake up in the morning, and uh, I hear, you know, somebody singing. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, what's, what's going on? So I, I go towards the bathroom. Here, Ike's up taking a shower. You know, he's, uh, he spent 32 years in prison, right? And he's singing in the shower, like the happiest guy that ever lived. <laughs> I'm looking at him and I say, God, oh my gosh, I can't believe this guy. I mean, his personality was just amazing. You know, everybody liked him. He never carried a gun. He never carried a gun and he never killed anybody. You know, in, in order to, you know, that's the kind of personality he had. People were just automatically attracted to him because, uh, you know, he was essentially a, uh, a good person, and unfortunately, he did a very bad thing, you know, drug trafficking. And uh, but but uh, you know, he paid the the price for it. I think we can all look back and we can say, well, this happened, and we look back and go, well, how did that happen? You know, what on earth was it that that made me um, take my 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 thought off of you know? Uh, yeah, we all we, we all get reflective. Uh, you know, I think I think I probably talked about it, uh, thought about it a little, but. I, you know, that wasn't his personality. You know, he didn't really dwell on the past, you know, the mistakes and all that. He sort of accepted 
what happened, really, you know, without, uh, you know, thinking too much about it, and he just moved on. And so he, I think he was able to survive in prison that long, you know, uh, 32 years. Can you imagine that? 32 years, consecutive prison, mm -hmm. uh, living in a 6 by 9 cell and coming yeah. out. Uh, coming out unchanged, because people said he was still the same person, as you know that, that knew him before he went to prison. They worked with him in the drug trade, and uh, and like I said, even the prosecutors wanted to talk to him <laughs> because they put him in jail, you know, for a long stretch. But they still, in a way, respect grudgingly respected the man. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that you know that that says an awful lot about his personality and his. his his inherent values and how people yes. got to know him when he was in prison. Yeah. How how yes. did you find him? How did you find his adapting to? Because you met him in prison. When he came out, how did he adapt? Well, when he came him? out, when he came out, he had a, a health problem. He had actually, actually had bladder cancer. You know, when he came out, and but it was under control uh, because actually, uh, you know, he had a good prison prison hospital, and they actually took good care of him. But when he came out, he was lucky in a way because uh, he was a, a army veteran, and you can never take that away from him. Uh, and so he had v Veterans Administration, um, you know, health insurance and all that sort of stuff, which actually is really quite good, uh, you know, compared to uh, the general health insurance the Americans got. So he had he had that to take care of him. He also had um, an army pension, uh, you know, which they can never take care of him. So he had money when he came out. And he also had Social Security from the government because even though you're a criminal, they still pay it to you. So he had a, so he had a, you know, a pretty. It wasn't like it wasn't um, uh, outstanding uh, amount of money to live, but it, it was modest. But it was enough because uh, Ike, by that time, you know, living in prison for that long, was a man of of of, um, of modest means and um, modest taste, and uh, and he uh, uh, lived that way. He was much more cautious when he came out. And then when he uh, when he went in, uh, the only problem was was that don't, I want to say one more thing. The only problem was that when he got out, he started to show memory lapses, and right. so yeah, so he started to have beginning Alzheimer's, oh. and uh, when you know, uh, which uh, as I uh, during the period that I knew him got slowly worse. It never got to the point where you know you'd have to be incarcerated and all that. But he started to forget things. I remember we'd go on a trip, and he'd drive me nuts because he would put his glasses somewhere, and, and uh, you know, we'd go looking for him, and, was, and then we found out it was the most obvious place, his shirt pocket, you know what I mean? <laughs> this yeah. sort of thing. And I said people with, uh, uh, with you know, people that have Alzheimer's probably identify with that. But um, so he was having uh, serious uh, problems. Uh, they took a, they eventually, uh, <clears throat> his family um, decided to take away his, um, you know, driver's license because uh, they thought he was getting too dangerous for him to drive. So he was getting a little depressed near the end of his life because he's, his mobility was being restricted and he was a very, he was a very, very smart man and he was starting to, you know, to uh, have a hard time, uh, you know, living, you know, in a, uh, in a normal environment, although he could remember everything, uh, you know, from deep in the past, which I understand is what a lot of Alzheimer's patients can do, they can remember the past. But have a hard time with the present. Absolutely. What was what is the one thing that you learned about him that you wish you'd put in the book but didn't? Well, I I um, I don't and think you may I don't not think... you may not put it in the book for, for many different reasons. And well, 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 
Well, there were, yeah, I, okay, uh, uh, I, it, was, it was pretty comprehensive, you know, I had access to a lot of information and all that, but um, I had to, you know, I had to leave out certain things relating to uh, uh, his relationship with people in his family, which mm-hmm. I thought would have made the story much more interesting and much more complete, but um, uh, I had to abide by his wishes, and that was part of our agreement when, when we... Uh, uh, when I when we came to an agreement about my working on on his, on his life story, so I left that information out, uh, which I thought would have added um, uh, to the bigger picture and probably answered some questions that arose in the book on that. So uh, I really can't talk about you know, what that information is, but that's that's what I probably uh, you know wish that I would would be able to do uh, to make the story more complete. But it is like I said. Uh, as complete as anybody will ever make it on his life. I, mean, I, I haven't had the, um, the the fortune to read the book, um, but what would you would you say the book is warm to him as a personality? How did you strike the right balance between saying actually what this guy did wasn't okay, but who this guy did what is and his values? Well, I, I told it, no, I told it like it is uh, in there. You know, I, I, I put in information about, you know, the effect on people. I mean, it was, it was when, when he was uh, doing his, uh, his uh, drug dealing back in the late 60s and uh, 70s, um, uh, the U.S. was going to, through a, a heroin epidemic that was very similar to the opioid crisis they have today, right? That's, uh, in fact, in the suburbs, it was, it was ravaging black communities. So, uh, you know, I put that in there. I said that, you know, that his, his actions had a, you know, dire consequence on, on uh, events in the United States and was affecting a lot of people and, uh, you know, actually killing a lot of people with, with, with the drug. And, uh, of course, you know, gangsters always say, well, it's up to the people to make your own choices, but that's not necessarily true, especially when it comes to drugs because, uh, yeah. you know, drugs like heroin are addicting. And uh, people get into situations where they don't, really have a choice because of the addiction. And so, uh, you know, I put that stuff in there. And, uh, and uh, you know, uh, he, he uh, uh, I put some of his uh, personal feelings with, you know, with his family um, and um, uh, tried to be fair uh, while respecting his wishes about what he didn't want in there because of, you know, privacy issues and all that. So um, I think I did about as good a job as I, as I could do. Is there a sentence or a paragraph in the book that you you had to really query whether you put in because it was quite damning of his values? No, no, no. he gave me complete uh, freedom, um, uh, you know, of the uh, of the book, and uh, and uh, he didn't really question. Everything was laid out at the beginning, and. Uh, I, I, I uh, abided by the agreement we had. And I think I'm, I'm guessing, I'm, I'm, what I'm getting to, Ron, is your relationship with him, because you can start you can start to get to know somebody and, and, and understand them in terms of research for a book. But as you get to know somebody over many years, that, that relationship changes. So was there any ever a time when you felt compromised in your relationship with him versus the information you wanted to put in the book and how that portrayed you? No, no, nothing, like, nothing like that. Like I had, I had uh, like I said, once the ground rules were established, I had complete, complete freedom to, to do the, to do that, you know. And I put, you know, there's a lot of, he belonged to an organization, and of course you're, you're dealing with criminal 
activities. There's a lot of treachery and all that, um, mm-hmm. you know, broken promises and all that, and um, and uh, relations have gone gone bad. And uh, I put all that in the book. It, it reads, you know, you know, I've been told it reads, you know, you know, like a novel because I I uh, try to make it really readable, uh, ac- as well as as accurate. Was there guidance that he gave to you? Um, for example, when you were having conversations and he was able to say, look, you know, this is how it was, but don't report well, on that because it'll put you in a difficult position. Did he give no, you that guidance as well? No, he, he trusted me, you know, as a, as a, as a writer to do, my, to do my job. And uh, I would go over things with him, uh, you know, when, when uh, I went to a situation. Sometimes, like, like uh, a lot of persons, people doing... Um, biographies. Uh, I had to interview him uh, more than more than a couple of times about certain aspects of the uh, of the uh, story because uh, I would have uh, written documentation and they, they may have uh, differed uh, a little about what he said. So I'd have to go over with what he, what he recalled with, with the written record and try to get it straight. But no, uh, you know, and he he, he was very patient and. Uh, uh, we never had any problems in terms of uh, uh, doing the um, working on the story together. Because of those people he was associated with, because of his his natural links, do you think he was able to protect you from some of that information? Uh, protect me in what Did way? he help? Do you think he held back from giving you information? Because I, well, I uh, well I know he did. I know that there were certain things that he that uh, we talked off the record, which is you know, uh, uh, you know all journalism, uh, journalists do. You know, you talk off the record subjects that can appear in in the uh, printed uh, story, and uh, and he would tell me things about uh, you know certain characters that uh, uh, he didn't want in the book, which it didn't compromise the story, but I understood why he wanted to do it. Yeah. Uh, for example. I'll just use one example. Uh, um, he had a, a lot of money buried uh, in, um, in in and around Goldsboro, and uh, he had one person that he helped him do that, and that person was still alive. And uh, he didn't want me to mention that in the story, you know, mm-hmm. the name of the person or anything. I, I agreed with that, and I thought it was a good thing. And uh, so I didn't mention that, you know, for privacy issues. But it didn't it didn't affect the story. I mean. You know, I still have that varied stuff in there, but I just didn't mention the guy's name. Yeah, and I, I think that's, you know, that's really important. I think that's because uh, some people may have just kind of gone off and done their own thing. I think that mutual respect. Uh, well, yeah, you hear that all the time where, uh, uh, you know, a, a source uh, after the story's been printed in a newspaper or whatever, you know, claims that that uh, he never said that or he was misquoted or that, that, that he... Uh, had assurances from the uh, the journalist or the author that that wouldn't be printed and all that sort of stuff. But um, you know, I'm, I'm very um, cognizant of that, and uh, as a, as a professional journalist, you know, I think it's important to respect you know the uh, the wishes of, um, of the source that you, you're dealing with. Absolutely. Because uh, you know, trust is upon is important. You know, that's what uh, builds your reputation as a journalist. And if the word gets out that you can't be trusted. To do the things you say you're going to do, then you're really going to be in trouble as a as a professional journalist. What do you think it was about you in particular that he that he put his trust in? 
because as you said he hadn't given these interviews before he did kept quiet for you know um you know 32 well, years in effect 29 years in prison what was it about yourself well he he uh, he trusted me because um you know he uh, he knew i believed the story uh because uh for example one of the um claims in the movie uh frank lucas a character was portrayed in uh american gangster was that uh you know uh, there was a, a, a cadaver connection, heroin connection, where um, heroin was transported to uh, the United States from Southeast Asia in the uh, coffins and sometimes the bodies of American soldiers. And, and Ike's name was linked with that because of uh, Lucas, and that's what made him really upset. And that's why he yeah. agreed to do the story, uh, to work with me on the biography, because I told him I would, I would set the record straight because I believed him, because I did do the research and I researched that conspiracy angle, and uh, it was total uh, uh, crap. You know, there's not no, not a bit of truth to that, and that's in the book. So he was very, you know, he was he was happy that I was able to to research it, and uh, you know, write that part to uh, to protect uh, protect his name, you know, down the line because everybody was writing that that happened after the movie came out. Everybody was writing, and I, I came up with the first story that didn't. That went against the twelve thousand articles that appeared on in, on on the internet, claiming that that story to be true. And finally, people started to believe that it was true. And uh, and and so now, you know, it, it's it's uh, been put in perspective. And uh, I think that that made I you know very happy. And that's one of the reasons why why uh, he trusted me was that I you know I I believe the story was true, and and I went about uh, um, writing about it. So who is the who is the next subject of your your books? Who would you really love to interview? Well, I, I can't mention I can't mention the, the name, but I'm I'm, I'm working with um, uh, uh, with a gentleman that's uh, a, a drug dealer uh, that's actually in your country <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. who approached me because I actually I had mentioned his name in one of in one of my books. I have to be very vague about this because it's, it's still not. A complete, uh, completely uh, done uh, exercise, and so. Um, but he's in prison now. He's supposed to be getting out uh, at the end of the year, and uh, he's one of the, the biggest dealers ever in um, in uh, Britain. And uh, he wanted me to work on a story, so I'm waiting for him to be released, and uh, we're going to discuss um, the um, the uh, uh, details. Of, uh, of this story and whether or not uh, I'll collaborate with him on it, which means that I, I may end up going to England a couple of times to do the research on the story. But that's pretty exciting. But that's, um, you know, one project that may result. But right now I'm focusing on screenwriting. I'm just starting my 10th screenplay right now. And um, and so I'm, I'm marketing my screenplays. I'm writing new screenplays. I'm really excited about that part. And, uh, and I think my, my life's... Uh, when most people are playing golf on the uh, <laughs> playing golf for, for a living, my life's turning in a whole new direction. So I feel you know very young and uh, excited about the future. I just you know uh, found screenwriting and I realized I can do it and could even be good at it if I keep keep at it. And, How different uh, is it? Um, How different is it from from writing your books? Well, very different. <clears throat> you know, very different. Um, uh, it's it's uh, in some ways uh, from writing. Um, a book is um, uh, easier and actually tougher. Uh, it's easier to write a first draft of a screenplay 
but it's so difficult to get it to the stage where you can, uh, to the point where somebody will be interested in, in uh, buying it uh, yeah, and, and making it into a movie. Much more difficult and very frustrating uh, to do it. But I, I, you know, I'm working at the craft. I've taken a lot of courses and all that, and I've had success. Like I, I got one, one of my projects, uh, a crime drama, is uh, about ready to go into pre-production. Uh, I've got another one. I've just sent off a. Um, uh, a letter with a, a, a revised script to uh, a producer that's uh, looking at making a movie for 1919, a $15 million project. So, you know, I'm seeing success. And fortunately, at this stage of my life, you know, I'm not uh, financially uh, strapped. You know, I'm, I'm okay. You know, I'm, I'm living a middle class existence. Uh, so money is not an object. I never, never thought money would be an object in my life. So I'm very happy. And I think that. The future looks pretty bright, uh, and uh, I'm excited about the uh, opportunities that are going to arise. So just, just one last question from, from myself, really. When you're writing a screenplay, are you already thinking about those people that might be part of that that production, or is that do you... Yeah, yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes, uh, yeah, they say, you know, a lot, a lot of screenwriters say they have an actor in mind when, they, when they're writing a, you know, writing a, a, a role under screenplays. Uh, I do that. I, I see, um, you know, I see people that can play play the roles, but I don't think that's an important part of my job. That's going to be the uh, producer's job. You know, they're going to get a, yeah. a list of actors, and you never know what's down the road because things can change so much, especially in the, in the film industry. It's a completely maddening profession. Um, you know, the, the, the major thing I learned is that you hurry up and wait. You know, an uh, inordinate amount of time go by before things happen. And for a guy that's used to uh, making things, you know, happen very fast, you know, it's, it can, can be frustrating. But I'm I'm um, learning to uh, um, to be patient, and uh, and I think that uh, you know if I do, uh, success will come down the road. Well, tell everybody, Ron, while you're online, um, where they can go to get your books, where they can go to get more information about yourself. Okay, um, I have a personal website www.ronchepsik.com. That's www.ronchepsik.com. And I have a publishing company that was mentioned earlier in the show, Strategic Media Books. That's www.strategicmediabooks, S-T-R-A, T-E-G-I-C um, uh, books.com and uh, those are the two uh, main uh, websites and if people want to connect me on Facebook I'm, uh, I'm always open to new friends um, uh, and uh, I don't Twitter that much <laughs> uh, I'm just too busy on that I'm, I'm trying to get interested in that but probably in the new year I'll be one of my projects to get more actively involved in, in Twitter and uh, I have my radio show uh, at uh, at uh, theartistfirst.com um, uh, website. You can it's indeed an honor to be with you this evening. The Artist evening. First is the, is the um, uh, network that I, that I, I do my show uh, through, and it's www.artistfirst.com. And you can look up Crime Beat. That's Crime Beat, the name of my show. And um, uh, I've got all kinds of guests, including... Uh, Alan Warren, uh, who's going to be on again in the new year, and uh, all our shows are archived, 
for 24-7 listening. You can go there and download the MP3 of the show and uh, listen to it at your uh, convenience. Fantastic. And I'm sure that uh, my listeners will definitely go and have a look and uh, listen to some of your shows. Maybe not Alan's, but we'll listen to others. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ron. It's been really enlightening and I found it a fascinating interview and um, there are so many things we could have talked about and and didn't even touch upon, Uh, but I've really enjoyed the interview, so thank you. Yes, they're very good questions and uh, I wish you the best of luck with with your new uh, adventure on uh, on Alan's show and uh, hopefully we'll meet up again. Absolutely. You take care. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. To find out more about our show, guests, or listen to a previous show, visit our website at www.somethingweirdmedia.com. The mission has been completed. The end! By George, he's got it! It is the end! I'll see you! If you're lying to me, I'll be back. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.